you very much. Um, first thing I should say is, whenever I say something you don't understand, please don't be at all shy to just put your hand up and say, what does that mean? Because, you know, I 38 years in diplomacy, if I don't use a lot of expressions you never heard of or uh, three-letter acronyms, I'd be very surprised. So please, this is, I want this to be for you. So if there's any sort of lack of comprehension at any stage, please stop me or to explain something that I've just said. Um, what I'm going to do in 30 minutes is uh, crunch down for you something that we did in the embassy in Bucharest in Romania in December, um, which took all day. Um, so uh, it, it, we will move at quite a, a speed. Um, we, we had a conference called 30 Years of Freedom. Uh, 16th of December last year was the 30th anniversary of the start of the downfall of the Communist Party in Romania. Uh, and it fell on Christmas Day, 1989. So 30 years on, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? And we actually had a majority of the audience looking very like you. What we did was recruit elite schools from across Romania to send their pupils to us um, to look at what was communism. Because they couldn't, no young kid in Romania knows what communism was like. Such a bad experience that they tend not to speak about it in their families. And it's not taught in classrooms because it's not yet history. Uh, there are the first post-communist leader is still on trial for his crimes against humanity, which he perpetrated once he got into power. So communism wasn't being talked about. But if you don't understand what happened 30 years ago, how can you make a judgment about where we are today? So this is a, a conference to help them understand where they came from, how Britain had been involved, and what it meant for them as young members of Romanian society. And a couple of days later, the thought occurred to me that actually, growing up in the UK today, when do you ever hear about communism? Uh, you do in some history lessons, but what you don't really know about is communism that happened in our Europe. So this is a case history of what happened through communism from 1945 to the present day. 30 years of freedom, but actually my contention would be you can only appreciate the freedom if you knew what went before. So that's what I'm going to try and do. And I'm going to talk with any luck, not for longer than half an hour, and I may even be able to operate this, but only if I turn it on. Thank you. So. We just had a, a brief word about communism, and the sort of communism that you're likely to study, I suspect, uh, at Wellington is Russia and China, possibly Vietnam, where the communism sprang from the countries themselves. Um, but if you look at Europe, and this is what Europe looked like in 1989, sorry it's a bad map, it was my choice from Google Maps and it wasn't a very good one, um, but the colour difference is all that really matters. This is how Europe looked until 1989. Uh, all the red in communist countries, all the blue, the free world. And uh, it, it doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, you can, these days you can go to Croatia on holiday. You could go to Croatia then, but it was a very different sort of place. Um, all these countries 
invented, given their form in, after the First World War, but after the Second World War, as a result both of realpolitik of, a, of an invading Red Army, but also of agreements such as Yalta, found themselves in the communist, in the Soviet sphere of influence, and they were locked in communism, and they didn't want it. In 1947, when the Communist Party of Romania took Romanian government over, there were still only a thousand members of the Communist Party. When they fell in 1989, there were four million. Um, the case of Germany is probably the easiest to access, um, but I think it's just worth reminding ourselves that Germany also, after the war, was split into four zones. Um, the, the, the Eastern zone, the Russian zone, and then the British, the French, and the American. And that's how Germany was administered until 1955. More acute, you can see where Berlin is. Um, it's important to point out Berlin was entirely in the Soviet sector, but Berlin was also divided into four sectors and divided famously um, by the wall, which not only ran up the center of Berlin, dividing streets and families, but all the way around West Berlin, so that if you lived in West Berlin, as I did from 1980 to 1981, as part of my degree, uh, you were living inside a concrete wall, and the ways of getting in and out were bizarre. Lufthansa, for example, was not allowed to fly to Berlin. No German airline was allowed to fly to Berlin. These were the idiocies that we dealt with in a country divided by the Iron Curtain through the existence of communism. Um, Romania. We've done, we've done European communism now. Um, that's what Romania looks like. Hands up if you've ever been to Romania. Well, you're a very typical British audience, because most people haven't. Anybody, apart from the two travellers, how, how long does it take to fly to Romania? Three and a half hours. I mean, it's, it's a pretty distant part of Europe. And the UK relationship with Romania throughout history has been very slight indeed, not least because Romania was usually either part of the Ottoman Empire, became Turkey, or the Russian Empire to the north, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So, you know, given that we were conquering the world, trying to find colonies, somebody had already beaten us to this bit. And actually, uh, though I make light of it, the UK-Romania relationship was very slight indeed, with one exception of the woman who should have married King George V, uh, a, a British princess who actually married the King of Romania, and she remains one of the people that the Romanians venerate as a national hero. And she, she that almost single Brit, is the only bit of uh, UK-Romanian historical link. And right up until 1989, there is almost nothing in the cupboard. Now, I just want to point out that there are, you could call Romania the United Kingdom of Romania, because there are three countries, historically speaking, in that Romania. Here is the Black Sea, of course. I say of course because I know it has the view. Um, and this is the Danube Delta, and the Danube is all of that border. 
this, con- this was one country, this is Wallachia, and that's Moldavia. They were separate countries until 1859, when they formed the United Principalities of Romania. And then Transylvania and all the rest of it joined in only in 1918. Um, and that's when, that's when Romania really founded. But in fact, Roma- one of the key things to know about Romania is that it is a Roman foundation. There was a pre-Roman civilization also, but the language Romanian uh, that is spoken today is the closest modern European language to Latin of French, Spanish, Portuguese, or even Italian. Um, I just kind of look at my notes because having to achieve all of this in half an hour, I better stick to my script. So, um, so here's Romania. In 1945, Romania fought on the German side. There were reasons, particular reasons for that. Germans invaded, essentially. Uh, the Romanian army, very effective army, that was guilty of anti-Jewish pogroms uh, to the north, going into the Soviet Union. Um, at the end of the war, they were occupied by the Red Army, and that, in 1947, imposed a communist regime. Um, what did the commun- That's what Romania looks like physically, with the mountains. And you'll see that the mountains separate those three kingdoms that I talked about. Um, and that, those are the principal cities, but we're not going to dwell on that. I think we'd only need that for the three-hour version of this lecture, which very happily you're not getting. Now, what does communism look like? Has anybody ever been in a communist country? Other than China. Uh, recently. Mr. Oliphant Callum doesn't count on this one. Which, which ones have you been to? Vietnam, yeah? Yeah? And one, yeah, one at the back? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, yeah. yeah, exactly. And there aren't many, I mean, how many other communist countries still are there in the world? I think Congo Brazzaville is still a communist country, technically. I think even San Marino might be, technically, but, you know. Um, anyway, that's the three-hour version. That's the map of the main cities. Uh, this uh, is what Romania looks like these days with Range Rovers and Discoveries, and that's what it looked like during the revolution. This is a, a split photo, uh, and this, this is actually the building we had our conference in in December. It was the Central University Library, and this is where the main violence happened in 1989. But just to give you an idea of what communism can look like, I have brought along some photos from my personal collection. Um, so there, there is that building before it got bashed about. And this, was a, this is just a street scene in, in the mid-1980s when I was there for my first posting. Um, that's to prove that I was there for my first posting. That was the British Council Library uh, within the embassy, which if you went along to that, you would be, when you came out, 
you would be stopped by the secret police around the corner so that the Brits wouldn't see, and you'd be asked, what did you do there? What did you read? Who did you talk to? And uh, where do you live? What does your father do? Where did he work? Mm, challenging job. Mm, you're still going to the British Council Library? Very risky thing to do for you and your family's future. And as a result, very few people came, but I've met all of them, I think, since I've been back. Uh, everybody was a member of the British Council Library. We, s we saw they only had 1,400 members. Um, but that was, that was one of the only sources of freely available printed matter. We had newspapers, magazines, and books available for any ordinary Romanian to access. And we and the American uh, Library were about the only sources of that. Um, uh, public transport was all you had. Um, you will notice on many of the other photos just the absence of cars. Um, public transport was uh, very popular, as you can tell. Food was the biggest problem. And essentially, uh, Romania is the granary of Europe. It's the third biggest agricultural producer by acreage in the whole of the EU. Um, it fed the Roman Empire. Uh, it fed everybody. Uh, and in Ceausescu's time, it used to feed Iran uh, and Saudi Arabia. But all of those mountains, guess what? They're full of sheep. Uh, but you could not buy any sheep products in Romania. They were all exported, as was the grain and the milk and the meat. So what you see here, this is one of the main markets. And you see a queue of people. What are they queuing for? What has that shop got? Well, at the moment, that shop's got nothing. But it's been said that there's going to be a delivery in four hours to a queue. And that's how... Romanian families got their food supplies during communism. For year upon year upon year. And families would have complex means of queuing. So the old people would be sent out to queue at night. Um, and uh, when the father came off the night shift, he'd get a couple of hours tip, and then he'd go and take over from them. Uh, and then when the school finished, the children would take over. And you'd wait and you'd wait until the delivery came and you would hope that enough had been delivered to get to you in the queue. And there's another one. Latte. Anybody guess what that is from Latin? Milk. Milk. Um, this, this luxurious apartment was where I, this is where I lived, uh, 1983 to 1986. I've shown my present Romanian staff this, and they think, oh, you know, how can a diplomat, even in the 1980s under communism, have lived in such an appalling place? The worst thing about it you can't see, but it was infested with cockroaches. Um, truly, truly appalling. Another trolley bus on a typical Bucharest street scene. And here's, I'm actually quite artistically proud of this one um, because the emptiness of the fridge is pretty clear but we, got, we picked up a Romanian built car um, which was a model the French no longer needed so they sold it and then that was produced in Romania and that's the basis of the Dacta you may have heard of Dacta Duster which is a, a very good 
very cheap 4x4 vehicle. Well, that's how it started, that green thing. This is uh, Ceausescu knocking down historic bits of Bucharest in order to build his uh, megalomaniac palace. The, it's now the building for the parliament, but the building he built, 12, 12 stories high, is the second biggest administrative building in the world after the Pentagon uh, in an agricultural country where everybody was starving. Um, but he had to knock down a lot of the centre, and we'll come on to a, a better picture later. Oh, this is it. Um, you see, it might be a little bit indistinct, this Orthodox church in a wasteland. Well, that used to be the historic centre of Bucharest, which Ceausescu demolished from about 1985 onwards. And in amongst the demolition, he got rid of the oldest monastery. There was a 15th century monastery in central Bucharest, which is no longer there. Um, but such was the outcry in the West that he did actually uh, alter some of his policies. And what you can see there is a church on stilts. Can you see that it's not actually connected to the ground properly? They, they moved on railway tracks uh, four whole churches. And they put a concrete pad underneath it, lifted it up, and moved it. And in one case, they moved it and decided, for good measure, They'd twist it 90 degrees so that it no longer faced east. Um, but if you go to, go to Bucharest nowadays, this is just sort of massive, tasteless concrete blocks uh, built in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, yeah, I really was there. The, the only flower supplies you could buy in those days were from the, what we called then, Tsigan, uh, um, from the gypsies. And the gypsies were the flower traders. Um, and there are, uh, the, the, the Roma population of Romania is so big that you can still find their traditional caste system. The Roma being a, uh, an ethnic group that originated in India, uh, and you, th they still have the musicians. They have the, uh, the tin workers. They have, nowadays, they have street cleaners, and then they used to have flower sellers. Um, that is the embassy which uh, uh, it's, it's still in that building, which is a bit, of a bit of a disappointment to me. I thought we would have got somewhere flush when I was going there as ambassador, but apparently not. Um, and this is... Do you know where that is? No, this is Sugishwara. This is... If, if you ever go on holiday to uh, Romania, and there's a reasonable chance that you will, uh, Brits are the biggest single national group of tourists. And this is in Transylvania. This is one of the uh, very old Saxon towns that was developed from a, in the 12th century. Now, that's what it looked like then. Now, it's a comp it's a, the buildings are exactly the same. It's just that they've been looked after. And it's now packed uh, with, uh, with tourists. Stunning place. Uh, Vlad the Impaler, uh, who was one of the forerunners of Dracula, lived in Sugishwara. Sugishwara is stunning. If you ever have the opportunity to go, don't give up the opportunity. That's a market um, in April. Uh, I mean, there's quite a lot of apples there, but that was about all. Um, and this was what you got all the time, just uh, peasants coming in from the countryside 
and you can count how many carrots he's got. Uh, we used to buy uh, bunches of five carrots, which all together would be about the thickness of your thumb, uh, because as soon as they were extractable from the ground, you could go and flog them for money, such was the, the, the difficulties of living. Um, there's a statue of Lenin in front of the House of the Spark, and the Spark was the Communist Party newspaper. It's now called the House of the Free Press, and, and, uh, and Lenin is no longer there, you'll be happy to see, happy to say. Um, I think this is propaganda by Ceausescu, um, celebrating 20 years of his rule in 1985. And this, this is the square in front of uh, where the palace is built, up this road is the Patriarchate. And you see there, that building there was the biggest market in the center of uh, Bucharest. That's Piazza Emiri. And uh, amongst many of the other things that he did, he just blasted that market. So now it's just an even bigger place for traffic to uh, travel around itself. Um, lots of brown powder, not quite sure what it is. Yeah. Um, and you can see remnants of peasant costumes there, which you would see pretty much today. Th that scene is pretty much what a modern market would look like, except in such a fertile, sunny, well-watered country, it will be now heaving with produce, absolutely heaving. Again, another queue. Uh, this is for... Um, pies, essentially. So, that's what communism looked like. Now, I haven't got long. Um, so, what happened in 1989 was that the regime that had led to that being the Romanian experience, was toppled inside uh, eight days. Uh, in Romania, there was no sign at all of any political dissent, anybody who had a different idea about how to organize. Whereas in Poland, there had been the Solidarity Movement that you may have heard of. Uh, in the GDR, there were a lot, in the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, the former Russian zone, there was lots of uh, house groups, there were prayer groups, the churches were very active. In Hungary, Tesco's uh, were, uh, existed in, in Hungary from the early 1980s. Now, that might not sound too exciting, but for me, uh, living in Romania, I went to Budapest for a holiday uh, to another communist country and, went and discovered there was a Tesco's and came back with box after box after box of orange juice because we couldn't, there was really no food to find at all on the local market. But the Hungarian model had already embraced the private sector. And that was true of everywhere in, the, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, except Romania, and to an extent Bulgaria. But Romania really was the, the, the place where the Communist Party had uh, the tightest possible grip. So, 16th of December, uh, there's a small demonstration in the western city of Timisoara on that map that I didn't let you look at. Um, and within eight days, 
Ceausescu had been toppled, um, but through blood. And it's the only revolution in uh, the Central and Eastern Europe of 1989 where any blood was spilled. The Berlin Wall came down without loss of life or even injury. Uh, and the same is true of Czechoslovakia, Czech and Slovak republics now, Hungary, Bulgaria, even the Soviet Union. So this, this was a real problem, but it was the shortest transition. And what happened afterwards was that it was replaced by another neo-communist system, which only then changed six years later. Um, but what we have now is a Romania which is, which is transformed from those days. Uh, and a, a Romania which, when you arrive in it, well, it looks a little bit down at heel. There is an awful lot of money still needs to be spent on its infrastructure and on renovations, but it's got the fastest rate of economic growth in the whole of the European Union. It's got more IT workers per head of population than any country in the EU. Um, people like Oracle, Microsoft, Amazon, and the London Stock Exchange all base their IT work in Romania because Romanians are very, numer uh, very numerate, uh, at least the high-performing ones are. Um, so Romania is transformed. If you go there and have dealings with uh, your opposite numbers, you will think that you are just in touch with uh, youth, international youth with exactly the same tastes, exactly the same perspectives on life, essentially, as you have got. But that has been created in only 25 years. What Romania has also achieved is a level of political reform, which even Romanians don't realize how good it has got. In 2019, they had a second form of revolution, uh, where, I, I don't want to get into all of the details because uh, we'll, we'll lose the whole audience, but there was a man in charge of politics in Romania who was a criminal, and he wasn't allowed to be in the government, so he became the Speaker of Parliament. And from that position, he dictated how Romania was going to run. And all he was trying to do was avoid the criminal charges. So he was sacking judges, he was changing the law, he was decriminalizing the charges on which he had been found guilty. And the whole of people like you, people like me, the modern, liberalizing, reforming Romania thought that this was the end of democratic Romania and that they were looking again at another Ceausescu. But what happened? Well, first of all, the anti-corruption police got him. The courts convicted him. The con constitutional court said, yes, you really do mean it, and he's now in prison. So what they managed to do in 89 was topple a dictator through violence and through tens and tens of thousands of people being on the streets. What they did in 1989 was use the political reforms and the institutions that they had created to effect that political change. And that's a real, a real achievement in only 24 years. Everywhere else in Central and Eastern Europe has been at the reform game for something like 40 years. Now, Romania has still got lots of problems. It's got problems of inequality, 
big problems of uh, poverty, especially amongst the Roma community, but not only. Um, it has very bad roads, it has very bad railways, has lots of airports that you can fly to from lots of airports in this country. It's very well connected, and it now has a population that moves around. Under communism, you could not leave the country. Nowadays, there are about half a million Romanians living in the UK. It's ex I cannot believe that there are not uh, Romanians working in Wellington College. Um, they are a, a, the backbone of the economy in sectors such as construction, hospitality, agriculture, but also in universities. We've got 10,000 Romanian students at British universities at the moment, and 1,000 Romanian academics teaching at those universities. We've got 2,000 Romanian doctors, 4,000 Romanian nurses. So our countries, despite being at opposite ends of Europe, with no historical pattern, actually we are starting really to have a common experience. Um, and actually, when you meet Romanians, and I hope you will, I hope you'll travel there, you'll have a great time. It is very beautiful, very culturally rich. You will discover Romanians are very, very warm people, and one of the countries they like best in the world is the UK. Um, and we can get into that in questions. But I, I ought to stop. Before I do, however, I want to take you back to the conference that I mentioned that we organized for Romanian high school students. And we said to them, before you come to this conference, we, don't we want you to really participate, uh, unlike the opportunities I haven't given you. Um, we want you to really participate in the conference, but it means you need to have done some research. What was communism like? Ask your grandparents, ask your parents, look around and, and, and channel your research. And it wasn't quite a mail-in project, but we said to them, do something with it. And 11 of the groups produced films. And what I'm about to show you is the one produced by the National College named after Andrei Shaguna in Brasov, um, which is probably the top school in the country. Of course, all state schools. But this is the three-minute film that they made to express for them what 30 years of freedom means. Freedom is a wonderful sounding abstract idea with so hard to express it in the world. Sure, if you look it up on the internet, you'll find many definitions. I think it goes beyond words. Maybe the best way to fully understand it is to look back and see what wasn't here. The probability of speaking out 30 years ago as I'm doing now is extremely low. I can't imagine myself in the same circumstances then. Chances are someone had already moved my text up. 
Um, the, the other ten films actually are, are on the par. They're very, very good indeed. And actually, they're all very different. If we'd given everybody a different brief and said, you do a film about this, uh, you do a film about that, uh, but we didn't. We just said, you've got three minutes, make a film. Uh, they're on the British Embassy Bucharest website. Uh, if you want to look, if you look, put, type in 30 Years of Freedom, uh, you'll get a variety of the films. That's half an hour or more of uh, me talking at you, for which I apologize. And we covered a huge amount of ground. Uh, this is the bit that I'm looking forward to more, I hope you are, of actually getting your questions answered. So what would you like to ask and do not be shy. Prince of Wales is the biggest asset, apart from what we're doing uh, as government. The Romanians uh, think the fact that he has been to Romania every year since 1999 is extraordinary. They call him uh, Romania's best ambassador. Um, but actually very few people in this country know that he ever goes there. Um, so well done for being amongst the few. Actually, what he does is give Romanians permission to be Romanians. And what he says to them is, your culture, the biodiversity of the country, the beauty of the country, and the fact that you've preserved this in a way that nobody else has, that's special and needs to be preserved. So I think he makes Romanians feel really good about themselves, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing him in uh, a couple of months. But he's a massive asset. I think they were all, very, even though one could sort of lump them in, it's all communist Eastern Europe, they were all very different. They were different because of their own traditions and histories, uh, because of their own uh, their economic potential. GDR was always very different because it was very close to the West. Uh, the, the Dresden is still uh, mocked uh, in, in the eastern parts of Germany today because it was the one bit of West Germany, uh, it was the one bit of, of East Germany that couldn't watch West German television. So the, the, the terrible sort of joke is that they're actually just a lot more stupid in Dresden because they missed out on 40 years of West German telly. Um, but, I mean, you still saw uh, th their, their, their essence, their very different natures coming through. Uh, and the severity of the regime uh, depended from place to place. In Romania, Romania was one of the strictest, but it wasn't one of the most brutal. So for diplomats, our, our diplomats in Warsaw um, expected their flats to be trashed because the local secret police wanted to destabilize them and make them unhappy. We didn't get that in Romania at all. Uh, I, I went about the whole of my three years almost not knowing that there was a secret police presence around me. Um, but I've had all, um, uh, all my illusions dispensed with because for Easter last year, 
the head of the internal security agency modernized, transformed uh, uh, MI5 equivalent presented me with a bound copy of my Securitate file, um, which is actually really useful. It's got some things in there that I'd forgotten. Um, but one of the things it also demonstrates is that there's always a risk of overemphasizing the importance and effectiveness of agencies that you fear. So we were all terrified about the Securitate. You know what? In that, I got that much paperwork on me. Wow, what a bad job they did. You know, I mean, all of the things, I mean, I did nothing of which I'm ashamed or could have been blackmailed for or anything. There, there was nothing uh, interesting. But I could have made, I could have made some interesting things. And if I was standing out on the outside watching Noble over there, I would have thought, why is he doing that? That must be because, not a bit of it, an awful lot of bureaucrats filling paper, showing they were doing their job. Were they interested? Did they believe that they were really upholding the freedom of socialist Romania by watching Noble? It doesn't look like it from the rubbish that they wrote. Um, and all in manuscript, so it's very difficult to read, but um, I should, I'll bring it one day and show you. Yeah. Well, it lasted everywhere until 1989. Um, why did it remain unchanged, I think, is the thing that, that's special about it. And for that, I think that's a very deep question which hasn't been satisfactorily answered. It's all about, I think, I think part of the answer is in the national characteristic. Uh, Romania is a country, as I said, that didn't actually get in full independence until, until 1918. Um, its, its language wasn't even written until the 15th century. It has all of the hallmark, and, and there's almost no written history from about 200 through to 1200. So nobody knows what was happening. Now, the one thing you can say is that's not a, that's not a nationality that's very strong and imposing itself. You know, the French monarchy or the Spanish monarchy or the British monarchy, there is plenty of, or, or the monasteries, there's plenty of history written because there was stuff to write about. I think one of the things that we see in the absence of records and the fact that uh, when they start, it's at a very low level, and the Middle Ages in Romania goes on until the 17, until 1700. And essentially everybody, I mean not everybody, this is a gross generalization, you must never stereotype, but everybody was a shepherd working for the local landowner. And, and, and it's a peasant population that was told, if you don't keep your head down, it will be cut off. And it feels as if over those 2,000 years, more or less, they were used to not sticking out, not being a problem, and they did the same in communism. And they went from 1,000 members to 4 million members. You know, one in every five people was a member of the Communist Party. Because if you wanted better food supplies, that was the only way to achieve it. Um, so, I th so there was a very unquestioning approach. Um, and I mean, I, it, it sounds a difficult thing for me to say, but lots of my Romanian friends and colleagues have said, yeah, it's something like that. But it's, it's, very, it's, n it's a very good question, and you could do a PhD on it um, after you've done an undergraduate degree and a, and a master's. Um, 
but um, I don't wish to sort of rush you and you know, I know you've got enough prep anyway, but just think about it for a PhD. I said that Prince of Wales is one of our best assets. The other best asset is the fact that Romania and the UK thinks about uh, the present Russian uh, state activity in very similar ways. Romania, different parts of Romania have been invaded 14 times by Russia since 1750. Uh, and the one thing that unites all political parties and the whole population is an anti-Russian sen sentiment. Um, and the Republic of Moldova was fully, it's a fully Romanian part of Romania, which in 1940 the Soviet Union just annexed. Um, and uh, some of it, there are 500,000 Romanian speakers living in the Ukraine from that similar annexation. And they are people whose families are living in Romania. So it's a very, very open wound. Um, and uh, when the Ru uh, Romanians watch invasion of part of Georgia and Crimea, etc., etc., they think, look what happened to Moldova and look where we sit. So there's a huge level of, of fear about Russia. inching towards sensitive areas, aren't we? Um, well, to get straight to sensitive areas, this is the first time in my 38 years in the Foreign Office that foreign affairs have been a significant domestic political issue. You know, every other general election we have approached, we've always prepared briefing for what this party said in its manifesto and what this party said, etc., but actually we knew that whoever was in power, the assessment of British national interests would be very similar. And it wouldn't be, the uh, it wouldn't, whoever won, it wouldn't be a big shift. So everything to do with Brexit and the last general election was the first time that the Foreign Office has lived through something that was really politically decisive. That, that's the huge change. Uh, the other huge change and I think it's the thing that makes diplomacy so exciting, is uh, we're in the business of solving the unsolvable. So, you know, if you wanted to come up, I mean, I, I will do it for you, but, you know, if you wanted to come up with an insoluble, apparently insoluble foreign policy problem, you might say it was the, uh, the, the Israel-Palestine question. You know, it's, nobody knows how to solve it. Um, but actually, diplomacy plugs away and plugs away and plugs away. And, uh, or, or what to do about Iran and civil nuclear power or any number of, uh, of difficult issues. When I started, not only did we have the Berlin Wall and, and communism over that huge red splurge of Europe, we also had, in South Africa, the absolutely poisonous topic of apartheid, where the black population was... Uh, subdued, uh, subjected by the white population. And that, that dominated world politics. And there was never any chance that that would be solved. And the 
the other one, the other policy area that I, I worked on both of those, and I also worked on uh, counter-terrorism in Northern Ireland. And we never thought the IRA would stop bombing Northern Ireland and the mainland and mainland Europe. Uh, and they did. And actually, it just took good people to not give up and to keep at it and to keep at it and to keep at it. And sometimes those problems are solved not through direct channels, but by people who've decided, like Gorbachev, to introduce changes, uh, or by uh, F.W. de Klerk in South Africa. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily sanctions that did it, but the collective effort of international diplomacy so changed the circumstances that views changed. And changing people's views and making it making people look at it from the other person's perspective and seeing how their own self-interest could be enhanced by actually changing policy. That's what diplomacy is about, and it won't ever change, I think. Um, so it, it's a fascinating uh, area to be in. it was all present and you had to you had to agree with it publicly because if you didn't you would be reported to the security police did it persuade anybody almost certainly not uh, I mean most of those pictures uh, that we saw in the film were of course uh, that was all from uh, Romanian state sources so it was all approved it was all propaganda. Do you remember the milk? Do you see the milk bottles and the piles of food being delivered? You know, one impact of that, I'm sure, is Romanians watching that, saying, "Well, that's not happened in, in my town in the last five years." You know, look what they're trying to read. It. So I think, I think propaganda, which is obviously peddling lies, undermines the authority of the people who peddle it. Um, and again, we're, we're into sort of fake news territory, but. You know, if you can prove that somebody's telling you something because they want to make you believe something else, how does it make you feel? I mean, I, I think you, 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 one often goes in the opposite direction to what they intended. It's when it's really good propaganda, when it's subtle, when, it, when it's a version of the truth which isn't quite the truth, but you can't say it's absolutely wrong. That's when propaganda becomes very difficult. I was in his presence once. I was the, when the foreign secretary came to Romania in 1985, I was, I was press attaché in the embassy. Uh, so I got to take all of the journalists in who were allowed to take a snap of him. And so I went in, but that, that was all. Yeah. No, it'd be a lot further ahead. And one of the proofs uh, you can see through architecture. I mean, uh, I, I hope, did I mention their track record on aviation? Or did I just do that at dinner? No. <laughs> Romania is one of the pioneer countries on aviation. The jet engine was founded by, found, uh, discovered by, uh, invented by two people, one of whom was a Romanian, coming entirely out of their 
their maths and physics tradition. So there was a very big developed uh, heavy industry sector in the earliest days of the 20th century, but the agriculture was really the powerhouse, and they, they really can feed Europe. If you go come to Bucharest and look, do what you should, what you should do in London as well, is look above the shop level and look at the architecture. And the architecture of Bucharest is every single bit as opulent as, say, Regent Street. Um, and there is there's Art Deco, there's Art Nouveau, uh, there's uh, French fin de siècle architecture. Stunning building after stunning building in this country that we've never heard of. But if their economic trend had gone on from the 1910s and the 1920s into the 1930s, Bucharest was still known as the Paris of the East because of the sophistication of this hugely multicultural uh, city and country uh, with a powerhouse economy behind it. You know, had it not, well, it's not just communism because they also unfortunately had a fascist dictatorship uh, in the 30s and through the war and then communism. So the period from about 1930 right through to 1996 is lost time. So where Romania is today, uh, Romanians don't appreciate it like, like this, but they really have done an amazing job to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Did we really do anything? I mean, you heard a reference to the, uh, the I'm sorry, the sound was not terribly distinct. Uh, though, he was probably a 17-year-old boy who's never been to a British-speaking country uh, in a state school. Uh, I, I think, I think you know, they're a very polyglot country. But he did talk about BBC Romanian service. So we had that. That was broadcasting all of the time. And nowadays you do people who, who say that was important. But things like Radio Free Europe, which was the American broadcaster, was probably more significant. Um, I'm not sure that we did an awful lot directly. There was always an Anglican church in Romania. In fact, the only actual Anglican church in the whole of Central and Eastern Europe was in Bucharest built by Queen Marie, who should have married George V, but married the German king, uh, the, 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 the Romanian king. Um, so that was always a beacon of religious freedom. What we were doing, what I was doing as in the embassy, uh, as I was press attaché, but I was also the human rights monitor. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Helsinki Final Act, or the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe which is now called the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe. And this was a, a pan-European, literally, 54 countries are now in it. Uh, they met in the early 70s to try and agree a package of how we should live together in Europe. And there was one basket of it, the, it was arranged in baskets. There was a political basket, an economic basket, and a human rights basket. And from the Helsinki Final Act in 75, every three or four years, all of these countries got together in a conference and they sort of marked each other's homework. And that, this was done with the full 
support of the Soviet Union at the start. What they hadn't realized was that we'd be marking their homework in detail on what they were doing on freedom of the press, on freedom of religion, on freedom of expression, etc., etc. So we, we met them very frequently to review with them how they were doing, you know, at, like a session with your tutor if things are not going particularly brilliantly. And they got a regular drumbeat of this has to be better, that has to be better, that has to be better. And that got into the public domain. The public, through BBC Romanian Service, Radio for Europe and others, Radio Liberty, they heard that the West was really paying real close attention to their domestic circumstances. And I think one can say that that was a form of encouragement that somebody was looking out for them. Um, but in places like Hungary, Czechoslovakia, GDR and Poland, that actually led into political and economic reform movements, which it didn't in Romania and not really much in Bulgaria either. Um, now, we were all part of that, and we were one of the biggest foreign, foreign policy players. So I suspect the real answer is that our biggest impact was through the international system rather than bilateral.